If you were with us last Sunday morning, you will remember we began a very brief series of studies, in fact only three Sundays, under the overall title of Nevertheless. And last Sunday we looked at an incident in the life of Jacob, and likewise today we are turning to Daniel chapter 3, and we are reading verses 16 through 30. As we look surprisingly, not so much at Daniel, but three of his closest friends. And so we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For some of you, this will be an unusual story, one you are not very familiar with, especially if you're watching from home and you are only recently beginning to join uh, Sunday morning services. And the background to this story is this, that way back in chapter 1, Daniel, along with his three friends and many of the elite from ancient Judah, particularly the city of Jerusalem, were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And significant number of years has passed since then, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are now three provincial leaders within the Babylonian Empire. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, creates a golden statue and asks them to bow down and worship the golden statue. And of course, many in the population do, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to do that. The king hears of this. He is, in fact, the passage tells us he is raging mad with them and he threatens to put them to death. And so that's where we are breaking into the middle of chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, We want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement. And asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, and governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. 
Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands, and they were, and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubbish, excuse me, of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. Ruth and I have good friends who live in California and because they are on the East Coast, they are able to visit New Zealand fairly regularly, a couple of times a year, and they enjoy it immensely. And during one of their first visits to New Zealand, they had been reading up on the Maori tradition and they realized the impact and influence that the Maori people had in New Zealand in terms of cuisine, in terms of literature, architecture, language, and so they thought we really ought to see if we can visit a Maori village, and that's exactly what they did. And of course the Maori people love having tourists to come and visit, and they put on a special show for them and welcome them, and in those early minutes of arriving in the village, and the villagers are lined up greeting them and welcoming them. Linda thought to herself, well, I suppose I should try and engage with Maori people as they would engage with me. And so when she was introduced to three or four of the village elders, she stopped, held them by the shoulders, leant in, rubbed their noses and said, hi, I'm Linda, I'm from California. Then she went to the second one and did the same, and the third and the fourth. And when she got to the fourth, it dawned on her that perhaps she was mixing up Maori culture and Eskimo culture and in the middle of rubbing noses she thought oh no maybe this is not the Maoris maybe this is the Eskimos and she wasn't a million miles off as it worked out they do touch noses and foreheads and then uh, they welcome you but just for that second or two she kind of froze with uncertainty And I suspect most of us at some point in our lives have found ourselves in situations where we freeze for a second thinking, I'm in over my head, do I really know what's happening? And you're about to see exactly that this morning with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They absolutely feel in over their head. There's a sense of What is taking place is outside of their control. They can't influence it. There is nothing they can do about it. And you know the back story here of, at the end of chapter 2, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, having come from Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And the dream impacted him a great deal, and it was frightening and disturbing. And he asked all of his leaders across the empire if any could interpret it for them, and none of them could. 
And at the end of chapter 2, Daniel is introduced to the king and he interprets the dream for him. And Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed that he promotes Daniel to a position of leadership along with his three friends. And we mentioned that a moment or two ago. But 16 years has passed since the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And you know, as I know, that 16 years can be a long time. Think back to when you were 16 years old. And between 16 and 32, a great deal happens usually for young adults. Today, we would think of 16s leaving school, going off to college, graduating college, beginning in a work environment, building a career, perhaps falling in love, getting engaged, becoming married, starting a family, moving home. And 16 years is a long time. And for Nebuchadnezzar, I suspect it was a long time as well. The end of chapter 2, he was clearly impacted by Daniel and all that Daniel had to say. And he was impressed with Daniel and his friends. And he was impressed with their God. But by the time you get to chapter 3, you see that change quite clearly. Chapter 2, he is impacted and influenced and impressed with God. But by the time you get to chapter 3, He shows indifference and apathy towards the God of Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego. And so, apathy, indifference creeps in. And I think most of us can identify in some way and see a parallel in our own lives when it comes to apathy and indifference. How often have you said to yourself, that it is important to eat well, to be healthy, to exercise. Started off back in January saying, that's it, in this new year I'm going to lose those 10 pounds I've never been able to lose. I'm going to enroll in a gym. And so you start off with great enthusiasm, recognizing that it's time to eat healthily, exercise, be careful. And then by the time you get towards the end of January and into February and towards the end of February, a little bit of apathy and indifference creeps in because you forget some exercise for a couple of weeks and you think, oh, I really need to go back to it. And then you think, well, you know, actually, I'm feeling okay. I lead a kind of healthy life. I watch what I eat. Most of the time, and, you know, every now and again, it's not a bad thing. And by the time you get home at night to gear up and go back out to a gym, you think, oh, I can't be bothered. And we know how that goes, do we not? What about spiritual health? This has been a tough year for many of us spiritually. It's been a tough year for a number of reasons. Church has not been as open as it once was. Sunday schools not always meeting in person. Small Bible study groups, mission groups and huddles. And we're thinking in the midst of all that we used to enjoy in terms of meeting with good Christian friends, opening up God's Word, studying it together, applying it to ourselves. 
We started off with great intentions. And then we discovered Zoom. And that first Sunday morning, there we were, bright and shiny like a new pin, dressed, hair, makeup in place, thinking this is great. Although we can't meet, we can at least Zoom. And then as the weeks go by, now we're turning up and watching Zoom in our pyjamas for some of you, and it's got a little apathetic and indifferent, and we know how that goes. Is that the case for Nebuchadnezzar? Once impacted and influenced, but we know there's a world of a difference between impacted and influenced and a transformed heart and mind and soul. World of a difference. And all of that, we imagine, has taken place over these last 16 years. And here is Nebuchadnezzar modeling for us. If absolute power corrupts, it corrupts absolutely. And he makes a golden idol. And the early part of the chapter goes to great lengths to describe it for you and tell you all about it. And he is so pleased with himself, he calls national and regional leaders together. And so you have a list of who's who in the power structure of ancient Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar hears that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego will not join others in bowing down and worshipping this golden statue. And the culture is telling them they must participate. And pressure from others are saying to them, it's no big deal, it's a false god, you really don't need to bother, just pretend to go along. And they refuse. And they come under that kind of pressure and they absolutely refuse. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say to the others, it's okay, this is just a misunderstanding. Let me talk to them. Let me explain to them. And none of that happens. And he doesn't approach them and say, tell me, what is the difficulty here? Can we not work our way around this? Is there middle ground somewhere? And that doesn't happen. And it feels, as you're reading this chapter, that Nebuchadnezzar has a very short memory of Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego. No one says to them, now, Nebuchadnezzar, these are good individuals. These hold regional leadership positions. Those regions that they supervise are going well. These are good folk. What are you doing? None of that happens. Because here is a dictator whose will is worked out regardless of the consequences. And for Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego, this is not simply a misunderstanding. Because who they worship is part of their identity. They have known that all during their life, 
that God has held them in the palm of his hand and he has sovereignly been leading and guiding and directing them. They know he's answered their prayer. They know that he walks with them day after day. They know that his hand of blessing is upon them. And to deny that and worship something or someone else would take away from who they are. And they refuse And so eventually, we see verse 13 earlier in the chapter, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned them. And they ask, and he asked them, is it true that you don't bow down? And they immediately say, we don't. And for the three friends, you have here the secret of spiritual maturity. And let me say that again. In these three men, you see the secret of spiritual maturity. And what is it? It is this. That they have already decided that regardless of what comes their way, regardless of the difficult circumstance, regardless a situation when they feel in over their head and everything else is out of control, regardless of the temptation that comes their way, they absolutely will not surrender to it. But they will stand firm for the things of God. And that's exactly what's going on here. And they decided that long before the challenge ever came their way. And for you and I, likewise, when sin is enticing and appealing, when we begin to find ourselves being enslaved by it and addicted by it, Please remember the decision has been made long ago that you will not give in to it. We don't rationalize with it. We don't discuss with sin. We don't get into any kind of compromise with it. We simply say we will not go there. We absolutely will not go there. That's the point of spiritual maturity. You don't negotiate. You don't give in. You don't begin discussing the issues involved with it. And what do we read at this turning point of chapter 3? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and He will rescue us from your hand, O King. But even if He does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And right in the middle of that passage, you find five words that change everything. Almost as if they are saying to him, Nevertheless, the God we serve is able. Nevertheless, despite all of the threats, despite being in over our heads, despite the pressure from regional and national leaders, we will not worship a golden idol. 
even under threat of death. Folks, this is not just about losing your job. This is not just about others speaking out against you. This is about being threatened with your very life. And they refuse. And come back again to that biblical principle. Nevertheless, the God we serve is able. And you may be saying, okay, Richard, I think I understand what you're saying and I think I got the point about the secret of spiritual maturity is to make your commitment and live with that commitment long before the challenge comes. I got that. But Richard, how does this help me when I am wrestling with the pain and sense of loss of having lost a spouse to COVID or a family member in the last 12 months. How does this help me? How does this help me when I have a parent or a grandparent or perhaps again a spouse in that downward spiral of Alzheimer's and dementia and they no longer recognize their family members? Or the love we have for them. They can no longer carry on a conversation with us. And they are drifting. Richard, how does this help me in my day-to-day living? How does this help me when I have a grandchild going through leukemia because they have cancer at age seven? How does this begin to help? How does it help me with a son or daughter addicted to drug and alcohol addiction? How does this help? How does this help me when family relationships have fractured and broken and the grief of a nasty divorce is defining my life at the moment? Richard, how does this help me? Well, please notice what comes next in the passage. Because as the passage develops... Nebuchadnezzar resorts to extreme violence and throws them into the furnace. Almost as if he is smirking and saying, Okay, let's just see how the God whom you serve is able under these circumstances. Let's have a look and see how it plays out, shall we? And then, much to his surprise, and the surprise of everyone watching, they discover what we know as a reality. What Isaiah had prophesied way back in Isaiah chapter 7, and then again in Matthew chapter 1, we read those spectacular words, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and we will call him Emmanuel, God, with us. And right there, at the point of their greatest need, when day became darker than a thousand midnights, there was God Himself with them in the furnace. And you can almost hear them and watch them turning to each other and saying, Nevertheless, the God we serve is able going through a divorce that's nasty and debilitating and just awful, 
he is able. Wrestling with a seven-year-old going through leukemia, he is able. Losing a spouse to dementia and Alzheimer's in the midst of all of that pain and difficulty, he is able. And how do we know he is able? Because in a moment or two, as we gather round this table, we are going to remind ourselves that at the point of our greatest need, at the point when we were going through days darker than a thousand midnights, He came into our world and offered Himself up for us. The God whom we serve is able. He is able above and beyond all we could ask or imagine. When we are in over our heads, this is a verse to hold on to. And hear Him whisper to your soul, Nevertheless, I am able. And if you're here this morning wrestling through all of these issues, or perhaps you are here ashamed, embarrassed at your own sin, the places you've been, the things you have done, come again this morning and hear again the wonder of His body broken for us and His blood shed for us. And in your Bible, put a little mark next to the verse that says, the God we serve is able. And you can trust Him for everything you're going through. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture that speaks into our lives, that reminds us of Your love and Your grace and Your power, and enable us, please, to trust You for all that we face. Because we know the living reality. The God we serve is able. Father, be with us now, please, as we come to this table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.